Bow down thine ear, O Lord, and hear us, for we are poor and needy. We can do nothing without your Son. We need His help constantly, O Lord. And I am entirely without any wisdom of my own, any knowledge of my own, any power of my own to do any spiritual good to any man or woman or boy or girl gathered here this evening. My most eloquent words without the power of your Spirit will be as barren as a field sown with pearls. So this evening, Father, we pray that you would come and help. Help us in our weakness. Let me decrease, O Lord, and let only Christ be seen and Christ be felt in this place, that your people who are called by your name would be built up in their most holy faith. And if any are here this evening who are as yet strangers to Christ, we pray, O Lord, you the good shepherd will seek them and find them and bring them home as a lamb upon your shoulders, that there might be much rejoicing in heaven. We offer these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen. And if you would please turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to Psalm chapter 3, the third Psalm. As you're turning there, many years ago again, when I was a medical student thinking about this this evening, and um, one of the great cardiothoracic surgeons in the UK was doing his rounds in the Matter Hospital in Belfast. There are three teaching hospitals. There's the Royal Group of Hospitals. There's the Belfast City Hospital. And there's also um, the Matter Hospital. He was doing his round in the Matter Hospital. And in those days, uh, consultants did grand rounds. So he would be there. All the attendings beneath him were there. Uh, the chief resident was there. All of the Junior residents were there, the nurses were there, the occupational therapists, the physical therapists, and last but by no means least, actually least at the bottom of the great chain of being, were all the medical students. And at the end of the round, the, the, the surgeon put up an x-ray, on the, the chest x-ray, on uh, the light box for the, 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 the round to examine. He called forward a final year medical student to examine the x-ray. It was his time for sh to shine. And shine he did. He walked up to the x-ray, took one look at it and said, this x-ray shows bilateral cannonball metastases through both lung fields. I would suggest that we look to the kidneys for the primary uh, source of the cancer. And uh, it really doesn't matter though, because this man is goosed. He's going to die and it ain't going to be long. And the cardiothoracic surgeon stepped forward and thanked him and said, well, son, you're 100% right, though I wish you'd been a little less blunt in the uh, diagnosis of the, of the case, but you did forget one thing. When you look at a chest x-ray in the presence of other people, it's always good to check the corner of the film where you'll find the name of the patient. And if you had done that, you'd have seen that my name is on the film, and that is my chest x-ray. Death is a problem for cardiothoracic surgeons, even the best of them. And toil and trial and tribulation is a problem for all men on this planet, even kings, even great men like David. 
And we meet this here in this psalm. It shouldn't escape your notice this evening. This is the third psalm. It's the kind of insight you've got to go to seminary to get. It's after Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 and Psalm 3. And immediately we enter Psalm 3, we find the promised king of Psalm 2 uh, up to his neck in trouble. And that should be a warning to you that when you enter the psalm book of the Bible, God has given you songs like these because you will need them before too long. If you don't need them tonight, it's only a matter of time. And David wants you to walk a mile in his shoes. Maybe you're here this evening and you're a million miles away from this psalm. Your life is sunshine. Everything's on the up and it's wonderful. Well, David says there'll come a time when it'll not be that way and you'll need to turn to Psalm 3 and the way to prepare for it this evening is to walk with me in my shoes. You remember Browning's famous poem, I walked a mile with pleasure, and she chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but all oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. And David says to you this evening, will you walk with me in my shoes? I want you to feel and know my God, and I want you to know my confidence, but if you're really going to suck the benefit out of this psalm, you must first feel my trouble. You've got to imagine how would you feel if you were in my shoes? Because there'll come a time when there's no imagination, it'll be reality. Let's read together the Word of God this evening, and you'll notice the psalm falls into three sections. The first outlines David's trouble, the second outlines his God, and the third outlines his confidence. And each section ends with the Hebrew word salah. We don't really know what salah means. Uh, I like to think it's a pause, perhaps a musical interlude for you to stop and let the words you've just read sink into your soul. Listen carefully then this evening. This is the Word of God. A psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and He answered me from His holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for You have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. 
Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. First of all, this evening we have David's trouble, and you'll see it there in verse 1. And there's the repetition of many in the Hebrew. O Lord, how many are my adversaries. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying literally to my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Many, many, many. David finds himself outnumbered, outgunned, and overwhelmed. Everything is falling apart. His life is falling apart. He's surrounded by enemies. Trusted friends have betrayed him. People he looked to for advice have forsaken him. Ahithophel, who was the wisest man in the land, you remember, and also Bathsheba's grandfather, had left him to support Absalom. And David himself said, the voice of Ahithophel is like the voice of God. How do you feel? Your life falling apart. The people have forsaken you. Your kingdom has been taken from you. You're fleeing out of Jerusalem, down across the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives. How would you feel? Secondly, his family is falling apart. The, entrance, the, the title of the psalm carries the weight of it. And it's filled with enormous pathos. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. The little boy, he cradled in his arms. He held his hands. He taught this wee lad to walk. He played with him, wrestled with him, taught him how to use a sword. And now his son, his son, Absalom, Absalom, my son, has risen up against him. Can you feel his pain? His world is falling apart. His family is falling apart. Thirdly, his relationship with God is falling apart, or so it seems. Many are saying to my soul, there is no deliverance for him and God. There's an arrow that's got through all of David's defenses, all of his armor, all of his reason, all of his theology. The arrows come right through and penetrated all the way into the depths of his being. It's piercing his soul. And David, you remember, knows that there's truth in these words. He is receiving the discipline of God. You remember all those years ago when he stood on the battlements of his palace and looked up and saw Bathsheba bathing on a rooftop near the palace? And she was the wife of Uriah, David's friend, one of his mighty men. And David looked at her. And then just like Eve in her sin and Achan in his sin, he desired her. And after he desired her, he took her. 
And the Hebrew is very violent. There's no way, really, Bathsheba could have turned him down. You don't turn down the advance of the king. And he forgot, you remember, Solomon's words, the ways of a man. And I imagine, I wonder, did David teach Solomon these words? When, remember in Proverbs 5, when Solomon's teaching us about sexual immorality, teaching his own son, son, the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. And when you read 2 Samuel 11, the text doesn't mention, a God, doesn't mention God at all. It's all about David what he saw, what he wanted, what he did, until the last verse of the, psalm, of the chapter, when the writer says, now the thing that David did was evil in the sight of God. God was there all the time watching David, watching her, watching David desire her, watching David take her. And it goes from bad to worse. She falls pregnant. He calls Uriah back from the, tr the front where David should have been leading the army. And he tries to coerce Uriah to have relations with his wife so that everybody would think it was Uriah's child. And Uriah says, far be it from me, Lord, to, to be with my wife when my men are at the front alone without their wives. So David gets him drunk. And the irony is appalling. Uriah, as a drunk husband, is more faithful with his own wife than sober David was with another man's wife. And eventually, David sends Uriah back to the front with his own death warrant in his hands and trusts the integrity of Uriah not to read it, which, of course, he didn't do because he wasn't that kind of man. And Uriah falls accidentally on purpose. And then we read, you remember, if you turn in your Bibles, in 2 Samuel 12, we'll not read the whole chapter, I don't think. But the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, there were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom, and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. Sin is like the back of our head. We're much better at seeing it in other people's lives than in our own life. Like our friend on the bike this morning. Our, our own sin looks clean to us. And David's full of anger. And then come those words. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. 
I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me. Remember on Wednesday, if you were there on Wednesday? Sin, you've got to understand that when you sin against God, when I sin against God, it is a total rejection of God done by the totality of your being. Not just breaking a wee rule here or there. It's a rejection of God, a despising of God. We've got to own that to feel what sin is. It's treason on a cosmic level. You have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own house. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. We teach our children to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. Well, as David leaves Jerusalem, he could say in truth, the Lord will destroy me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. And I have no one to blame but myself. And the Scripture says, as he walks up it's a tremendously poignant word, Second Samuel 15, 30. And David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went. And his head was covered, and he walked barefoot. Then all the people who were with him, each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. Remember, as he leaves, Shimei calls down curses upon him. You worthless man, he said. The Lord is giving you what you deserve. He's repaying back on your own head what you did to the house of Saul and what you did to Uriah. And those words, many are saying to me, there is no deliverance for him and God. It's not, just, it's not just that God won't. It's not just that God can't help him. Of course, God could help him. The doubt that's ringing in David's head is that surely God won't help me. How do you respond in those moments? Have you ever been there? Maybe you're there now. Maybe you have right royally messed it up. Maybe you've had an affair and your marriage is broken down and your children won't talk to you anymore and and you live your life lonely and you think about, "What what did I do? What have I done? And the devil whispers in your ear, you have nothing to blame but yourself. It's all your own fault. What do you do in such moments? And Psalm 3 tells you, you bring it to God. The first word of the Psalm, Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh. It's the covenant name of God, the personal name of God, the name that God has welded to His people's name. He is Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's His memorial name to all generations. But shorthand is just Yahweh. 
And David looks to him and says, Lord, I have forsaken you, but in my heart of hearts, I know you will never forsake me. Alec Mateer, in his wonderful commentary in the psalm, says, the breakthrough from the gloom of verses 1 and 2 comes when David grasps afresh who God is and what God is. And the lesson of this psalm, if you forget everything else I said this evening, is that when the, when the bottom falls out and the darkness comes in like a flood, it is never, it is never, it is never a vain thing to call upon the name of God. Though at times his hand may turn against you, Christian, never his heart. His heart is never against you. He may spank you at times with his hand, but he'll never turn his heart against you. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. David's trouble. And secondly, David's God. And you'll see that there in verse 3 and 4. But you, O Lord, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. He says four things about this God. First of all, he says, you are my safety. But you, O Lord, it's a wonderful picture of faith. Faith never looks at circumstances. Faith never looks at numbers. Faith reaches through circumstances and lays hold of God, who God is and what God has covenanted to be for me and with me. And David says, but you, it's a climactic contrast, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Now, the word shield, there's a couple of words for shield in the Hebrew language. One of them describes the big shield that you might erect and hide behind when the enemy is firing at you a long way off with arrows, like the Roman shield. And then there's the buckler, the, the small shield that you keep on your arm when the big hairy Philistine is in your face, raining blows down upon you with a battle hammer or an axe. That's the word David uses here. You are a, a buckler, a shield. And it's wonderful. This is not something that God gives you in trouble. This is something God himself is for you in trouble. He stands between you and it, and he is your shield. Not just a wee shield on your arm, but a shield all around you, above you, beneath you, ahead of you, behind you, beside you. But you, o Lord, are a shield about me. And this shield will not always keep you from trouble. It's better than that. It'll keep you through trouble. But you, o Lord, are a shield about me. My glory. Now, that's an interesting phrase. What's David mean? Well, the Hebrew word for glory means weightiness. 
that which adds stability and security and significance to my life. What is it that makes you significant this evening? What is it that makes you not a big zero? Well, we, we all list these things, right? They're like our taglines, right? Oh, I used to be a physician. It's much better than just saying, I'm, you know, I'm just a, I wasn't just a pastor. You know, I used to be a physician. I used to be somebody. You know? um, maybe it's your bank balance, the car you drive, the house you live in. You're, you're a handsome, beautiful young lady, young man. And we find security in those things. Remember one summer, I was back in Northern Ireland as an intern in churches and um, half the summer, I drove my friend's beat-up old Hyundai when, before Hyundais were cool. And it was beat-up. I mean, there was semi-digested pieces of Chick-fil-A scattered about the back of, the, the, back of the, the, the seats of this. It was his family kind of car. And uh, there was just all manner of detritus in this car. And I drove it gratefully for half the summer. And I drove into the, the four station of a gas station to get gas. Nobody turned their heads. I got out of the gas car, filled the car up, got back in again, drove off. Nobody noticed. The second half of the summer, I drove my mother's BMW 328i Sport. And I drove into the, to the gas station, got out, wearing the same suit in the same kind of person. But everybody turned their heads. Who's this guy? He must be somebody. And you can start believing that. It wasn't even my car, but I started to like that. Like, oh, I'm, actually, I'm somebody. This is really good. I'm, I'm somebody. And we can believe those little badges. But the real glory of the Christian, what makes a Christian truly significant, is none of the baubles and badges that we put on from this world. It's the fact that we know God and that He is my glory. And sometimes God has to strip everything else away until you're left with nothing but Him. And to realize not only is it enough, it is everything. And as David walks out of Jerusalem, he's lost everything in the world, but he's lost nothing in his God. And he can say, you are my glory. And you need to remind yourself of that, Christian, because everything else will go until you lose the only things you can properly call your own, your mind and your health and your life. And what poverty if your glory won't outlive this world. But for the Christian, his glory is only just beginning. God, you are my safety. God, you are my significance. God, you are my sympathizing friend. But you, Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts up my head. Now, think about that for a second. Illustration. Some years ago, probably 10 years ago now, we had a little dog called Charlie. He was a Jack Russell Terrier. And he was a tiny wee dog. We got him from the pound, and uh, he hadn't been properly fixed. Which meant if there was another dog in, on, in heat within 10 miles... Charlie was here, he was there, and he was gone. And he would run away. And one day he ran away, and he was Benjamin's dog. And Benjamin was a wee lad then. And he was Benjamin's dog, and he ran away. And he didn't come back for hours and hours and hours and hours. And we were convinced he was dead. And Ben knew it. And he sat on the, he sat on the steps of the front house, put his head in his hands, and just wept. His dog was dead. 
And there's nothing we could do. His head's in his lap. Head's in his hands. And there was nothing we could do to comfort him. And then it seemed hours and hours later, it was the end of the day, it was dusk, and there was a noise at the far end of the neighborhood, the wee bell on his, on his little collar tinkling. And Ben heard it. And then the patter of those little feet galloping down the road back home. And what happened to Ben's head? It lifted up. The dog had come back. And Ben's head lifted up. And here's a man who's lost absolutely everything he has to lose. And he says, Lord, but if you'll come back to me, if you'll not forsake me, oh God, my head will lift up. You're my sympathizing friend who comes alongside me, the Paracletos. And when you're with me, my head is up, it's never down. You're my shield, my safety. You are my significance. You're my sympathizing friend. And then Fourthly, you're the one, someone who listens when I cry out. And in the Hebrew, it's emphatic. Literally says, to my voice to Yahweh, I cried, and he answered. Sorry, my voice to Yahweh, I cried, and he answered me from his holy hill. And the first word in the sentence, my voice, my voice to sinner, my voice, the one who forsook him. My voice, the one who failed him and despised him and left him. My voice, I cried out to him and he heard me and he answered me from his holy mountain. It reminds me of that wonderful scene at the end of Mark's gospel. I would love to have been in heaven when Jesus commissioned the angel to go down to the ladies at the tomb. And you can imagine the Lord Jesus calling to the angels, looking for a volunteer, and one comes forward, I'll go. And he says, okay, when you go, listen carefully, and this is important, none of the pyrotechnic stuff you guys are capable of. These are women who have broken hearts, and you'll scare them half to death. When you go, I want you to appear like a teenager, a young lad, okay? Non-threatening, no lightning and clouds and thick smoke. Just go as a teenager and sit in the, in the tomb. Now, this is also important. Whenever she, they come, I want you to tell, listen carefully, I want you to tell them, go tell my disciples and Peter. And you can imagine the angel saying, Lord, it's not that a bit redundant because Peter is one of your disciples. Why don't you say, go tell my disciples? That's, that'll carry the deal. And in my mind's eye, I imagine the Lord saying, yeah, you know Peter's one of my disciples. And I know that Peter's one of my disciples. But right now, Peter is not so sure. And if you go down to her, them, and you say, go tell my disciples, Peter will wonder, does he still mean me? And so this is very important. You tell them, go tell my disciples. And Peter, I tell you, Yahweh and his son and his Holy Spirit haven't changed. He's a heart for his people, the last, the lost, and the least, even when you and I have messed it all up. There was an Ann Peter for Peter, and there'll be an Ann Peter for you this evening as well. As your lowest moment, when you've no one to blame but yourself. David's trouble 
David's God. Thirdly, David's confidence. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. What's David saying here? God will keep me when I cannot keep myself. I lay down and slept. We're helpless sleeping. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. Now, David here, I think, is saying more than he knew. You remember what happened that night in Jerusalem? Absalom is looking for counsel. And Ahithophel, who had the voice of God and the wisdom of God in him, said to to Absalom, strike now. I know all your troops haven't arrived. It doesn't matter. Take whatever men you can find and go to David's camp tonight and strike him and you'll kill him. Don't wait. And he was right. But Hushai was there. David's friend. Hushai said, no, you don't want to do that. Better to be safe. That's too risky. You go tonight, David probably won't even be in the camp. He'll be off in a cave somewhere. You'll attack him, and your first venture against David will fail. And your people will wonder, are you up for the job of being king? Wait till you gather all of your men together, and then strike David. And David had no idea that was happening, that conversation. And Absalom listened to Hushai rather than Ahithophel. And Ahithophel knew it's over. He goes out and hangs himself. But the point is, David lay down and slept that night. And the only reason he woke the next morning was because of the hand of omnipotent providence was keeping him when he couldn't keep himself. And what he did for David, I tell you, he'll do for you also. Secondly, under this point, God will keep me no matter what happens. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Ten thousands. John Knox said, when there's one man with God on his side, he is in the majority. And the reason, of course, is because salvation belongs to God. Nobody can touch a man God has determined to save. That's the foundation of all true courage. When I'm fighting with God in real war or in spiritual combat, if God is with me, one is a majority. There is more with us than with him. With them is an arm of flesh. With us is the Lord our God who will help us and fight our battles. Thirdly, and lastly under this point, God has won the day because salvation belongs to him. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. Now David's speaking about future reality. Why, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. The battle hasn't even begun yet in earnest, but the victory has already been won. David is using here the prophetic perfect. He's speaking of a future reality as if it was past, because it's just as certain as a past reality. God himself will do it. You've shattered the teeth of the wicked, smashed teeth and a broken jaw. It's what Middle Eastern hunters did when they caught a mountain lion. They held it down and they smashed its teeth out and its jaw in. And then the lion was a pussycat. With a sore mouth. Now, some people get bent out of shape that God would be so violent. And they are very, very silly people. 
There's a wonderful scene in a movie, Silverado, it's a great Western, and Scott Glenn is the hero, and he's practicing his shooting, and he uses all of his bullets up. Never you shoot all your bullets. When you're at a range, you don't know. But he uses all of his bullets up, and he's going back to reload, and the bad guys all strike. And they abuse him terribly, and he's almost dead. And then Danny Glover stands up on the rock with his beautiful Henry rifle and chambers around. And he looks down at the men and says, Now, boys, I don't want to kill you, and you do not want to be dead. And the guys go, there's five of us. He couldn't be that good. And they go for their gun. And Danny Glover just wipes them off the face of the earth. And nobody watching that movie with an ounce of moral decency goes, well, he's too violent. That's just, that's just you know. No, you see, there were bad men there who desperately needed to be killed. And a hero stands up who's desperately ready to kill them. And our hearts rejoice. And David is looking at a world of men who hate God and who hate him because they hate God. And David is able to say, you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You've shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And let me finish this psalm here quickly by reminding you, as with all of the psalms, it's always instructive to think of a psalm. How would Jesus have sung this psalm? And Jesus, your Savior, as a young teenager growing up, learned the appalling cost of your redemption singing this psalm in the synagogue. Whenever he sang, there is no deliverance for you in God. I see his father come alongside his son by the Holy Spirit and say to him, son, for David, it was just the appearance of the reality. You and I know there was salvation for us in him. But in order that there might be salvation from God for David and all of David's brothers and sisters in this world and in the New Testament era, when you walk outside Jerusalem and down into the, the Brook Kidron and up toward the Via Dolorosa and Golgotha, there really will be no salvation for you and God in that moment. You will be abandoned to my wrath that my people might be abandoned to my love forever. And that should encourage you. There's a wee lady back in Savannah, June DeBose, wee small Scottish lady. She made the amazing shortbread. Oh, it was wonderful. And she died, and she faced death with tremendous courage. She's a wee, wee tiny lady, four foot nothing. And, uh, but she had, she had titanium in her spine from the gospel. When I preached her funeral, I said, I imagine five billion people in this world standing before death, the last great enemy. And death is parading about like Goliath. Who of you will dare stand before me? Who will dare face me today? And there's crickets. Nobody answers. And then this wee lady, June DuBose, steps forward. I'll face you. You'll face me, the king of terrors, 
I have swept the field. Great men, emperors and kings, even apostles have died under my power and authority. And you will face me. And the same in mind's eye, we June say, if I stood in my own name, I would tremble to face you. For you are indeed mighty. But there is one mightier than you. Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners. He has said, O death, I will be thy destroyer, and O grave, I will be thy plagues. And he has demonstrated through his earthly ministry time and time and again, when he speaks, you listen. He did it in Jairus' bedroom with his daughter died. He did it in Bethany at the graveyard where Lazarus lay. He did it outside Nain when the widow walked out with her only son on the funeral bar. And he did it on Easter morning when you could not hold him. And because you could not hold him, my brave Savior, you will not be able to hold me. I stand before you in the name of the Lord God of hosts. And he has broken your teeth and shattered your jaw. And you're not here today as the master, but as the servant. And your only role is to open the door of heaven and let me in. And what he did for June, Christian, he'll do for you this evening. When you come to stand before death, Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, will never see death. You'll just see the light of your Savior's face. And when you walk through the valley of the shadow, you'll fear no evil, for I'll be with you. My rod and my staff will comfort you. And if you aren't a believer here this evening, I want you to talk to me after the service. Because the Savior who's done that for me and every man, woman, boy, and girl in this church will do it for you if you reach out to him by faith and call upon him in truth. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for his power. We thank you for his beauty, his glory, his compassion, his kindness, and his willingness to reach down and save the likes of me and these people gathered here this evening. Lord, let our names perish from the pages of history, but let your Son's name shine forever like the sun, and may your people bless themselves in him. And give us confidence, like Miss June DeBose, to die well in Christ when our time comes. And Lord Jesus, don't forsake us. But as you were with David, be with us even in our worst moments, when we mess it up. We may forsake you, Lord Jesus, but please never forsake us till the day breaks and the shadows flee away. Amen.